With a gift of imagination, this particular author depicted uh, the ending of perhaps one of the greatest lives that have ever um, traversed this earth. And in this little treatise, he wrote these words. He said, speaking of this particular man, he was a child of the desert. He had a leathery face, tanned skin, clothing of animal skins. What he owned fit in a pouch. His walls were the mountains and his ceiling the skies. But not anymore. His frontier is walled out and his horizon hidden. The stars are memories. The fresh air is all but forgotten. And the stench of the dungeon relentlessly reminds the child of the desert that he is now captive to Herod the king. In anyone's book, John the Baptist deserves better treatment than this. After all, isn't he the forerunner of the Christ? In fact, even a relative of the Messiah? At the very least, isn't he the courageous voice calling for repentance? But most recently, that voice, instead of opening the door of renewal for thousands, has opened the door to his own prison cell. John's problems began when he called a king on the carpet for his sin. On a trip to Rome, King Herod succumbed to the enticements of his brother's wife, Herodias. Deciding Herodias was better off married to him, Herod divorced his wife and brought his sister-in-law back home. The gossip columnists were fascinated, but John the Baptist was infuriated. He pounced on Herod like a desert scorpion, denouncing the marriage for what it was, adultery. Herod might have let him get away with it, but not Herodias. This steamy seductress wasn't about to have her social climbing exposed. She told Herod to have John pulled off the speaking circuit and thrown into the dungeon. Herod hemmed and hawed until she whispered and wooed. Then Herod gave in. But that wasn't enough for this mistress. She had her daughter strut before the king and his generals at a stag party. Herod, who was as easily duped as he was aroused, promised to do anything for the pretty young thing in her G-string. Anything. You name it, he drooled. She conferred with her mother, who was waiting in the wings, then returned with her request. I want John the Baptist. You want a date with the prophet? No, I want his head, replied the dancer. And then reassured by a nod from her mother, she added, on a silver platter, if you don't mind. Herod looked at the faces all around him. He knew it wasn't fair, but he also knew everyone was looking at him, and he had promised anything, though he personally had nothing against the country preacher. He valued the opinion polls much more 
than he valued John's life. After all, what's more important, to save face or to save the neck of an eccentric prophet? The story reeks with inequity, doesn't it? John dies because of Herod's lust. The good is murdered while the bad smirk. A man of God is killed while a man of passion is winking at his little niece. Is this how God rewards his anointed? Is this how he honors his faithful? Is this how God crowns his chosen with a dark dungeon and a shiny blade? The, in, the inconsistency was more than John could take. Even before Herod reached his verdict, John began to have some doubts and began to ask questions. The foremost of all, as he sent a messenger to the Lord Jesus Christ, he simply asked, are you the one? End of quote. The counterculture and the cancel culture is not new. There's nothing new about it. We will cancel you if you disagree with our lifestyle. We will cancel you if you disagree with our politics. We will cancel you if you disagree with our worldview. And now that we have social media to harness and use, we can cancel you in a widespread fashion in a very short space of time. And how will we do that? Well, we will shame you. We will shame you with the crowd and with peer pressure, with mounting uh, tweets and emails and blogs and media reports. We will cancel you. See, the first century and the 21st century are really not all that different. And the believer in the Lord Jesus Christ from the earliest of the disciples all the way. In fact, most of you probably realize that as far as we know, 11 out of the 12 original apostles were martyred. That's cancel culture, isn't it? That's cancel the gospel. Cancel the message. Cancel these people. Because we have an agenda and we have a lifestyle of immorality and warped and twisted morals and twisted ideologies. We want to live by them and we want nothing threatening them. What about the believer? What about you? And what about me living in a time like this where it's on the increase? Now I realize we're out in quiet little northeast Washington in our little neck of the woods. And we're not in the heart of San Francisco or Los Angeles or New York or Chicago, but social media brings it to us quite, very fast. And people's minds are altered by what they listen to and what they're taught and what the, the next trendy going thing is. But what shall we be in light of all of that? Something new? No. 
We're not called to be anything new. We're called to be what we've always been called to be, a fellowship of the eager and unashamed. You hear me now? We are called as God's people to be a fellowship of the eager and unashamed. Where do I get that? Well, to start with, just turn with me to Romans chapter 1. And then we will launch into the message. Romans chapter 1. Beginning at... Verse 15, these three verses. And I don't even know how many times in 30 years we've come back to these verses. <laughs> Lance always pokes fun at me. Boy, you love Romans, don't you? <laughs> you just can't stay away from it. I can't. It's the flagship of the New Testament epistles. It is the Mount Everest of the 66 books of the Bible when it comes to the doctrine of God's sovereign, saving, glorious grace in Jesus Christ. I love Romans. But in verse 15 of chapter 1, Paul says this. And in a sense, the way he's writing, he's saying, and as I say this, I hope you'll join me in this fellowship. That's the spirit of chapter 1. Join me in this fellowship. Well, what kind of fellowship is it? It's the fellowship of the eager and unashamed. Verse 15. So, for my part, and by implication, I hope your part too, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. You know the great reformer, Martin Luther, in the 16th century, who led the charge, the great, uh, the great lion, the great bull. Do you know what verse of Scripture he hated before his conversion? He hated verse 17. Look at it again. For in it, speaking of the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. From faith to faith, as it is written, the righteous man shall live by faith. And when he read that, this is what went through his unconverted mind. He said, how can the righteousness of God, his sheer infinite perfection, which does nothing but condemn me for my own sin, how can that righteousness be included in the good news? The euangelion, the gospel, how can that possibly be? I don't love this. I hate this because the righteousness of God condemns me because I know what I am. And he didn't understand because he was reading with an unconverted mind. Listen to me now. 
he didn't realize that God was saying, not my righteousness as a factor to condemn you, but my righteousness as a gift to give to you. I give you my perfect righteousness, and you receive it by faith. Faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. And this is why, of course, Martin Luther's heart was completely changed, and then he became a flame of evangelistic fire and reform. And in a very real way, we're sitting here because God raised up this broken man, set him back on his feet. We sang a minute ago that you lift up my head. What does that mean? You lift up my head, not to lift it up in some kind of proud or puffed up way. You lift my head to look to the heavens, to look to Christ, to look to the one who has become my righteousness, Christ himself. Jehovah said, can you, the Lord, our righteousness. And as John Bunyan experienced out in the field, walking that particular day, meditating before the Lord, it became so clear to his heart, almost as though God had spoken in an audible voice, but he didn't. It was louder than that. And he said to, to John Bunyan, from here on out, you need to understand that your righteousness is secure because your righteousness is seated at the right hand of God. Isn't that amazing? Aren't you grateful to be his child and to be a believer and to be alive in Christ? You know, yesterday was one of the best days ever for me because someone that I had wanted to witness to for over 20 years opened the opportunity for me to share my faith with him and to open my heart wide. And I couldn't believe some of the things that I said. And one of the things I said to him is I said, please don't misunderstand. Yes, I, I, for 40 years I've tried to have good morals. I've tried to have good ethics and to have integrity. I've tried to be a good model, a good example to others and to children. I've tried all of that. And I still continue to, but please understand, all of that is utterly bankrupt without the Lord Jesus Christ. He himself is my salvation. And I said, forgive me for saying this, but I've had 40 years to walk with him. And I'm telling you the truth when I say this, that my consciousness, by the grace of God, I say this, my consciousness and experience of the Lord Jesus Christ makes him more real to me than any living person on this earth. And every child of God who loves him and walks with him and trusts him finds that he becomes more real in your experience than anyone else. How could he not? He knows you better than you know yourself, right? What a wonder this is. And then... Along with that, not only are we a fellowship of comfort, a fellowship of light, a fellowship of truth, a fellowship of grace, where if we could go on and on and on, what constitutes Christian fellowship together in this cancel culture world that we live in? And yet, here we are. 
But today I want to talk about being a fellowship of the eager and the unashamed. Is that okay with you this morning? You say, Pastor, you were already talking about that. Yeah, not really. I'm getting there. Well, let's do this. We're just answering a simple question. Why cancel culture will not silence us? That's all we're doing. We're answering a question. Why is it that the cancel culture and the opposition to Christ and the gospel is not going to silence us? Well, it's simple, and I just kind of came up with four, and I want you to see them with me. The first reason that we will not be silenced is because the gospel is the central theme of our Bibles. I mean, it's right at the heart of our Bibles. Let me just give you a few examples. Here we go. You don't have to try to look them up. If you want the verses later, I'll give them to you, but just follow with me. First of all, the gospel is presented to us as the gospel of the glory of Christ. Listen to this, 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. The gospel is about the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Secondly, it is also the gospel of peace. And we see that in Ephesians 6.15. And having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Thirdly, the gospel of Christ himself. It says in Romans 15.19, From Jerusalem round about as far as Illyricum, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ, the apostle writes. Fourthly, the gospel of God. For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel of God? Fifthly, it is the gospel of the grace of God. Acts 20, 24, Paul wrote, or spoke actually, but I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself so that I may finish the course and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. See how prominent it is? in our Bibles, how central it is. Number six, the gospel of your salvation, Scripture says. Ephesians 1.13, in him, speaking of Christ, in Christ, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. Even in the book of Revelation, it is called the eternal gospel. In Revelation 14, we read, And I saw another angel flying in mid-heaven, having an eternal gospel to preach to those who live on the earth, and to every nation and tribe and tongue and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. 
Worship him who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and the springs of water. Lastly, the gospel of the kingdom of God. This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. Matthew 24, verse 14. So, clear back in the first century, cancel culture was at work. And Herod being motivated, motivated by pride, motivated by uh, a need to save face, uh, motivated by a need to protect his own authority and power, motivated by lust and to please his mistress, motivated by all of these all of these warped and twisted um, intent. He canceled John. But did he cancel the gospel? You can cancel John. You can even put Paul in prison. Paul said, I'm in prison, but the word of God cannot be imprisoned. The gospel cannot be incarcerated because the people of God are the fellowship of the eager and the unashamed. And that's how it's always been. And that's how it's always going to be. Um, listen to this. Now after John had ta- was taken into custody, what happened? This terrible thing. Taken into custody. Eventually martyred. With his head severed. Shall we just shut down the whole thing and, and give up on it? No, it says... After John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God. See? There's no canceling the gospel. And he was saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. And so the New Testament describes this good news as God's invitation, God's call, God summons to repentance a complete U-turn and to faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. So the first reason cancel culture shall not silence us is because the gospel is the central theme of our Bibles and it has been trumpeted for the last 20 centuries and will continue to be. Secondly, We will not be silent because the gospel is the historic record of Christ himself. You ever notice that? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are all called gospels. And when you open to the gospel according to Mark, it begins with these words. The gospel, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The greatest good news that has ever been in this world. It is the message that our world needs to hear, that starting right here in Little Kettle Falls, and from here all the way around the globe, there is but one single message that can transform and change the heart of man. And no amount of woke movement, council culture, uh, critical race theory, or any newfangled trend that comes along can possibly meet the need and be the remedy to the brokenness of man except the gospel that promises newness of life. 
In this gospel, we have the biographical and theological records of the historic life of Christ on earth. In the gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we have his person, his, his miraculous virgin birth. We have his sinless life. We have his miracles. We have his mighty acts. We have his teaching and training with his disciples. And we have his commission to take this gospel to the ends of the earth. All of it's there contained in those gospels. His identity, character, beauty, power, wisdom, and his perfect finished work on the cross and the might and power demonstrated in his resurrection from the dead. No one takes my life from me, he said. I have power to lay it down and power to what? Take it up again. What a savior we have. We will be a fellowship of the eager and the unashamed. Thirdly, we will not be silenced because the gospel is entrusted to us as believers to proclaim to every generation. Matthew 28, you remember the Great Commission. All authority, power is given to me in heaven and earth. Go therefore and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe everything that I've commanded you. And then lo, here's my promise. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. It is the gospel about Jesus himself, out of eternity, into time, born of a virgin according to Old Testament prophecy, lived a sinless life under the law of God. He died on the cross, was buried, and was raised from the dead. He was carried into glory by, by the power of God the Father and given a place of highest honor, coronated as the king of heaven and earth and of eternity and installed as the eternal high priest who ever lives to make intercession for his own people. He will re-enter time and space in his second glorious return in power, judgment, and glory. He's coming again. That's why things are shaping up the way they are. He's coming again. <laughs> wow. And there is a generation that's not going to die. That last generation, when the trumpet sounds and the dead in Christ are raised and we who are alive to get and remain together until his coming will be snatched away and transformed in the twinkling of an eye, clothed with a brand new body, you know, the world would listen to this message and say, someone needs to come with the white jackets for this preacher. <laughs> he actually believes this stuff. Yes, I do. And I have 66 books. And, and the wonder of their inspiration and infallibility and the proof of prophetic history being fulfilled. I have every reason and more than reason to believe that the scriptures are the truth. He's coming again. Well, number four. The fourth reason we will not be silent is because the gospel is the power to transform everyone who believes. 
We read that earlier, didn't we? For my part, Paul says, I am eager. I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation. It is the power of God for salvation to transform you. And by the way, no extra charge for this one. The gospel is a message and truth that we never graduate from. Why? Because it's not only a message for the unsaved and the unbelieving to bring them deliverance and emancipation and rescue and to make them a new creation, but it's not just that. The gospel is for the Christian. We're to be steeped in it. We're to live in it. We're to marinate in it and revel in it and celebrate it and hold it and protect it. We are in, it's been entrusted to us, but it's also not only for the deliverance of the lost, it's for the discipleship and growth of the believer. And everything you read, really, no matter where you are, there's this crazy notion that, well, I, I believed the gospel back here and I walked an aisle and signed a card and I got baptized and so thank you, gospel, you did that for me. Now I'll go on with life. Are you kidding? There is no going on beyond the gospel. There is no plumbing the depths of the gospel. The gospel this wondrous revelation is given to us. We are to swim in it, live in it, be absorbed by it. It is to become the very blood that flows through our bodies. And as we do that, guess what happens? We more and more become part of the fellowship of the eager and unashamed. Paul wrote these words in 1 Timothy 1.15. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. Repentance and faith are the two sides of the same coins. Benefits and blessing that come to the sinner who repents and depth and strength and, and certainty and assurance is built into the life of the disciple who continues to soak in and study and take in the gospel of Christ. I want to just read this quote from J. Sidlow Baxter. I like J. Sidlow Baxter. He was a legendary Bible teacher. And he was British. And so whenever you're British and you have that accent, you always sound ten, time ten times wiser than everybody else. But J. Sidlow Baxter was kind of a quirky guy. And he wore these old suits. And he would come up on stage, and I'll never forget, I remember this account. He came up, I think he was preaching at one of the major Bible colleges like uh, uh, Biola University or someplace like that. And it was, this would be 40 years ago. But he sits up there, and of course when he sits down, his pants hike up, 
And when his pants hike up, you could see the most elaborate, bright, argoyle socks that totally clashed with what he was wearing. And there he is sitting there, and this is how he began his message to these college Bible students. He came up to the platform in his British dignified way, and he puts his hands like this, and he leans over the pulpit, and he just stares at them for a while. And then he begins his message with these words. And now, you little nincompoops. <laughs> I love James Edwell Baxter. Sorry for that, but this is what he wrote, and it's so powerful and so true. Fundamentally, Dr. Baxter said, our Lord's message, the gospel, was himself. He did not come merely to preach a gospel. He himself is that gospel. He did not come merely to give bread or multiply it. He said, I am the bread. He did not come merely to shed light or give enlightenment. He said, I am the light. He did not merely come to show people the door. He said what? I am the door. He did not come merely to, uh, to name a shepherd. He said, I am the shepherd. In fact, I am the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. He did not come merely to point in the right direction or to the way but said, I am what? I am the, the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. I like that. I want to be in this fellowship. I, I want so much to, in fact, I'll finish with this story. One of my favorite professors from years ago made a trip to China. And he went to China at a time which would have been about 30, probably 35 years ago, maybe 40 years ago. But he went to China at a time where China had been ravaged and the government in its totalitarian state had really cracked down on the Christians and they had done their best to cancel the church and cancel the gospel. And of course it had not worked. It backfired on the government of China and the church went underground and then multiplied at a rate that the government couldn't begin to keep up with. And by the way, when we all stand in that glorious assembly, we're going to have a lot of Chinese brethren standing with us. And in the midst of threat and persecution and incarceration and seizure of properties and all that was going on, the church just was like wildfire as the gospel was shared because they were a fellowship of the eager and unashamed. Back to my professor, he made a trip over there and he was 
snuck in to spend time with some of those that were in house churches and underground churches. And he was there to teach and preach the Word of God. And he was preaching and teaching all week long. And at the end of the week, when, this, when the messages were over and the sessions were over and he knew he had to fly out the next day, a believer, couple believers came up to him at the end of the service and they said, we can't understand this. And in their broken English, we can't understand this. How is it that you have such understanding of the Word of God when you have only been a Christian such a short while? And he said, what makes you think that I've only been a Christian a short while? Well, he said, they said, because we have noticed that after people become Christian, they're very, very passionate about the gospel. They're very passionate about Christ in their lives and passionate to reach others for him. But as time goes along, that passion dwindles. And they get very self-interested and they only care about their own lives and their own security and so on. And so we just assumed because of the fiery heart and passion and the, and the tenderness with which you've taught us all week long, you couldn't possibly be anything but a brand new Christian. And he said, no, no. I've known the Lord for some 40 years. I want to be like that, don't you? Do you want to get old and starchy and stiff and self-interested and all about you? Is that the kind of Christian life you want to live? I don't. And I want to be a part of this fellowship and I'm inviting you this morning. Will you join up again in a fresh way to be part of the fellowship of the eager and unashamed yeah. of the gospel? Yes? Yeah. yeah. Well, stand with me if that's true of you. As Kathy makes her way back to the piano, would you pray with me? Let's just take a moment of quiet. Lord, we so sense, we just so sense your presence here today with us. And we're grateful for it. We know you're always with us, but there's ways that you show up kind of unexpectedly. And we're just thankful to you, Lord. We know what we're made of in the flesh, and we know where you found us when you rescued us. And we even know the ongoing struggles in the flesh that we all have. But God, thank you. Thank you for the sheer miracle of the new birth. Thank you for the might of the Holy Spirit who changes us deep within and makes us into new creations. Now united to Jesus Christ, alive from the dead. Lord, we want to be unashamed and therefore eager to voice our testimony to others. And we stand our ground in this environment of cancel culture. And we say together, we will not 
be silenced? How could we? And then, Lord, we remember your words. Truly, I say to you that if you confess me before men, I will confess you before my Father in heaven. But if you deny me before men, I will deny you before my Father who is in heaven. Lord, in contrast to those, we stand on our feet today and we look up to you there at the right hand of the throne of God. And Lord Jesus, we say from our hearts to you, grant us fresh power, fresh grace, the spirit of the living God within each of us and make us a fellowship of the eager and unashamed of a gospel that is the only message that will change the heart of man. Lord, we just love you and are grateful to you for your saving grace, your sovereign, saving, calling, summoning, effectual grace. Thank you. And if anyone here, Lord, is without you, oh, Lord, would you show them how without you their life <laughs> amounts to just about nothing. Because someday they'll give an account to you for having ignored you their whole life long. Don't let them ignore you anymore. May they from their hearts this very day say, yes, Lord Jesus, I'm a sinner who needs salvation. And I call upon you. I call upon you to forgive me. I call upon you to change me. I call upon you to do within me what I could never do myself. Make me a new creation. Change my heart. Thank you, Lord. Thank you. Lead that person. Draw that person. As your word says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them. Oh, Father, draw that sinner to yourself and to your Son as only you can. And thank you, Lord, for your word today. Thank you for just the old, old story. As the song says, that I want, I, I like hearing it. The old, old story that I've loved so long, I never tire of it. The gospel of Christ. Thank you, Lord. Bless us now. Send us out as this fellowship of eager and unashamed witnesses for Christ. We ask it in Jesus' name and for the high honor and glory of your name. And all of God's people said,